As you do so, I encourage you to join me now in taking your Bibles and turning with me to our passage this morning, Nehemiah chapter 9. We will look at all of that, Nehemiah chapter 9. As you turn there, you'll notice it is a very long chapter, a very long passage. Why well, I said the one call message yesterday morning to encourage you to take some time before this morning to read through all of it. Um, pretty much, read through, read through all of it. Um, matter of fact, pretty much for, for the rest of this book and for our series, we're going to be looking at either large portions of scripture like this or all of a chapter as well. So hopefully you have read through it. What we'll do this morning, again, we won't read through all of it. We're just going to read through parts of it, sections of it as we go along. So if you haven't read it yet, if you haven't had time, let me encourage you to take some time today to read through this. It took me about five or six minutes to read through it. We want to make sure we're taking all of God's word in for our spiritual nourishment. So even though we're not going to read all of it this morning, I highly encourage you to do it later on. So let us now meet with our Lord and his word and be prepared for that time now through prayer. So let's pray together. Lord, even we come to a passage like this and it's broke up into bits and pieces, it's still your word, it's still spiritual food. It is still from you and it is still for our good. So help us to read it and hear it, to understand it in those ways this morning. This is a wonderful prayer. May it encourage us in our prayer lives and inform our prayers. So we may continue to glorify you even in how we pray. And may we glorify you now, how we worship you uh, in this time of coming before you and in, in your word. We pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. So to begin this morning, we'll read just the first three verses of Nehemiah chapter 9. If you'll join me now in the standing for the reading of God's word. Now on the 24th day of this month, People of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God Stands forever. Amen. May be seated. So our youngest child, Patrick, our son, our only son, is playing his first season of T-ball this spring over at Drotty Park. And I have the joy of helping to coach his team. If you have any experience with T-ball, with four, five, six-year-old T-ball, you know there isn't much coaching going on. It's more like trying to herd cats and to stop them from eating dirt during the game. We're doing our best to expose them in this time to get them to stop eating dirt and to get them to understand some of the basics of playing baseball, such as keep your eye on the ball when you hit it. Swing all the way through the ball. And when you hit it, Go this way to first base and not to third base or just run around in circles. When you're in the field, watch the batter. When it's a ground ball, get your glove on the ground to field it and watch the ball all the way into your glove. Very basics of playing baseball, but hopefully it's basics that help them play it and to play it well. 
Because these basics will always be a part of the game for them. If we have a diamond in the rough who goes on to the major leagues, these basics will still be there for them. When they come up the hit, they'll still need to keep their eye on the ball and swing all the way through the ball. They still need to run to the right bases. They still need to watch the ball and to the glove. So the reality and the philosophy of basics are true, not just for baseball, but for all of sports and really for all of life. No matter what it is, either it be sports or jobs or hobbies, those basics of those form the foundation. And in this foundation, it's good and needful for us to come back to those basics. Best brother, Ben, graduated from the Citadel and went on to the University of Georgia and got his master's in physics. And he's one of a handful of people in the world who can do what he does. And when he tries to explain it to me, within five seconds, I am completely lost as to what he does. is something with optics and physics and it's fascinating and I have no idea what he's talking about. But I do remember a conversation we had where he said to me, James, if I were to ever forget or ever thought I outgrew the foundations, the fundamentals, if I ever were to forget what two plus two means, then I would be a failure of a physicist. And I understand that. A man who has a master's in physics, optical physics, who's one of a handful of people in the world who can do what he does, says to you, that first math equation I learned in in first grade, 2 plus 2 equals 4, if I were to forget that, then everything else on top of that would crumble. That's fascinating, isn't it? Basics form the foundation. And it's good for us to come back to those basics to further stabilize the foundation. True for sports, jobs, hobbies, but it's especially true for the Christian faith as well. We never outgrow the basics of our faith. We never get too smart to think we know it all. What you learn as children in Sunday school and VBS about who God is and how much he loves you, you never outgrow that. Reading the story of creation, coloring the sheets, that has the ark on it with all the animals and it's on the waves. Reenacting the story of David and Goliath. Of, of building a, a little wall of, 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 of paper bricks and marching around it like the Israelites did around Jericho. Those are some of the basics that have helped form the foundation of a healthy and growing faith. A well-known and respected theologian wrote many books. Many people listened to him. He spoke at many conferences. I was at a conference and was challenged. It was a question. It was more of a challenge for him to summarize all the important theology he thought everybody should know. What are the most important things we should know and summarize it for us? The theologian pretty quickly stepped up to the microphone and says, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. It's one of the first songs we teach children in church. It's one that they learn in Sunday school. They learn in, they learn in VBS. And here's a man who knows Greek and Hebrew and Latin and German and French 
and Cyrillic and, and Aramaic and other languages who had probably forgotten more than most of us could ever know. And what's the most important theology to him? Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. It's good for us to remember our roots. It's good for us to keep coming back to the basics of our faith. We never outgrow them. We never get too smart for them to be helpful for us. And we see in our passage in Nehemiah this morning, it takes us back to one of the most basics of the faith, and that's the basic of prayer. And we've seen this throughout Nehemiah. God's people's response uh, to God and his work by praying, that's good for us to pray. But also here we find, says, a model of prayer for us. It's a long passage. And it's almost entirely of one prayer. And so it's a prayer that we can take and we can pray through. We can adapt part of it to our situations, but we can pray it word for word. We can take the outline of it and use it. We can take some of the major themes and pray through them. That's what a model of a prayer is meant to do and meant to be for us. And, and one of the wonderful things we find is that when God calls us to pray, he does not leave us on our own to try to figure it out. He, he takes our hand like a parent does with a toddler who's learning how to walk and very slowly and tenderly walks alongside of us and gives us helps and hints to how we are to pray. And we think of examples such as uh, the model of prayer that we pray every week, the Lord's Prayer. Think about how that has settled into our mind of how we are to pray. We think of the book of Psalms. We, we sing from the Psalms every week, but do you also realize that is 150 prayers for you and I to pray through and to use as models for our prayer? <clears throat> I believe it was John Calvin who said that the Psalms are the anatomy of the human soul. So which means that no matter what you are going through, you can turn to the Psalms and find one to pray that fits your situation. We think of Jesus on the cross, suffering the wrath of God, suffering the hell of our sins. And when he goes to pray, what does he pray? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's Psalm 22. So it's obviously important to God that we pray, that we have these helps and aids in our prayer life. Because as Christians, as we seek to be faithful in praying, we can find in our prayer lives that it can grow to be stagnant and, and, and even stale. We may have a routine, we may have a pattern that helps, but it may create a rut. And we find it just seems that we're having this one-sided conversation with God over and over and over again. So it's good for us to come back to the basics of prayer and visit prayers such as this one that God has included for us in his word. So as we read through this prayer, and again, I encourage you to read through it, we find that it has an unrelenting God-focused perspective. And it has this unfettered confession of personal and corporate sin. And this should help prove a bomb, a bomb for our tired, struggling souls as we're doing our best to have a good prayer life.
But we also need to remember that this prayer is in the context of covenant renewal that's taken place in Jerusalem after the exile. <coughs> As they go into these phases of covenant renewal, we come to this part where God's people are renewed in the covenant through the prayer of prayer through this prayer of praise, confession, and petition. So prayer is an instrument that God uses to bring us closer to Him in faith, love, and obedience. And the equation is very simple. The more you pray, the closer you will grow to God. That's just a relational, that's relational one-on-one, right? We know that in human relationships. The more you talk with somebody and have meaningful conversations with them, the closer you grow to them. And the same is in prayer. We don't grow closer to God through osmosis or by ignoring God. We grow closer through the reading of his word, but also by going to him in prayer. But the other, the other part of the equation is simple. That the more we pray as we ought, the more we have scripture inform our prayers, the more we will grow in our likeness to Christ. So not only the closer we will grow to him, but the closer we will grow to be like him. So if you want a revival, if you want to be revived in your love and zeal for Christ, prayer is an instrument of it. If you want to see revival in the church, if you're looking around going, I wish we had more people here. And I wish there was more zeal and love for Christ here. Part of the answer to that is through faithful praying. So it's good for us to pay attention to these God-given prayers that have given to us for his glory and for our good. It's such a long prayer as we there's a lot we can we can look at. What I want us to do together this morning is to look at the six sections of this prayer to help us to get a, a handle on it and to have these sort of bookmarks to help us pray through this prayer. We have these bookmarks to say, okay, if I want to pray in this way, I can go to this prayer in Nehemiah and can help me pray in this way. And Nehemiah sets this up for us by giving the physical details that these people are physically ready to repent of their sins that have kept them from God and from growing faith in God, growing in faith in God. They put on sackcloth, they, they've done all the kind of Old Testament posture to prepare for repentance and confession. So they first read God's word, and then the priest leads in prayer. And so the first section we find this prayer in verses 5 through 6 is it begins with praise to God as creator. Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them. And the host of heaven worships you. Now it's interesting to think that they have come to confess their sins. That's their purpose. But they don't immediately go to that. They don't say, dear God, here are our sins. We confess them to you. The first thing this does, the prayer does, is it begins with a focus on God. Not on their situation, not on their sins, but it's a focus on God. And this is biblical. We see this with other prayers. That when we pray, we are to begin with God and to, with his praise and glory. This helps us to have God-centered prayers. 
Again, we go back to the prayer we pray every week. Jesus' disciples hear John the Baptist and his guys praying. They come to Jesus and they go, Jesus, look, we're here, they're praying. They're having prayer meetings. Could you teach us how to pray? Jesus says, absolutely. And how does he teach them how to pray? What's the first two words? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So the first thing Jesus teaches his disciples to do is to focus on God, on his glory, and on his praise. Why? Because this helps put everything else into perspective. We saw this earlier in Nehemiah. When he hears the bad news about the condition of the wall, he goes to God and he prays first in praise and glory of God. Our inclination is just to go dump on God. Here, God, here's all my problems. You do something about it. God, here's my situation. You take care of it. That prayer becomes focused then on us and not on God. So we need to have prayers that puts everything else into perspective to help see the forest from the trees. When we pray this way, then what we are praying for is now seen through the grace and mercy and glory of God. The God who calls us to pray for all these things that puts everything into the good and godly perspective that we need. They then go in their prayer, or their prayer then goes into a record of God's power and grace up to that day. We'll look at parts of it from verses 7 through 10. It says, you're the Lord our God. You chose Abram. You brought him out of Ur. You gave him the name Abraham. You made with him the covenant gift to his offspring and to give to them this land. You saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt. You heard their cry in the Red Sea. You performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh. You know all of this. You have made a name for yourself as it is to this day. So their prayer begins with a praise of who God is. And then a praise of what he has done for his people. And, and, and think about all they cover in this. They go, back to, they go back to Genesis with Abram. And then they go to the covenant. And then to the, to the Egypt, to the wilderness, to the promised land, to all their enemies. And they remember that God has been with them, has guided them, has loved them, and has nourished them. They not only remember who God is, but they remember God's goodness and faithfulness in their lives. And as Christians... We all have that same testimony. When we have received and rested upon Jesus alone for salvation as he's been offered in Gospels, then we know that testimony of God's goodness and faithfulness. That God has been with you. He's guided you. He loves you. He's nourished you. We just need to remember. All those Ebenezers are there. All those touchstones are there. But the wonderful thing in remembering this as we are also reminded and comforted that the God who did that for you then is doing this for you now. The God who was so faithful to you in the past is faithful to you now and will be faithful to you in the, in the future. That he will always be with you to guide you, to love you, and to nourish you. He doesn't forget that, but we do. 
And so when we remember how good he has been to us, then we are reminded that he will still be good to us now and will be good for us for eternity. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. There is no change within him, including his goodness. And this testimony then leads to them praying for God's forgiveness and graciousness and compassion in very memorable words. Verse 17. You are a God who is ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and you did not forsake them. That, that's a prayer within a prayer, isn't it? That, those are words that we can pray every day so we can remember the gospel every day. That in Christ we know this God who is always ready to forgive, who is always ready to be gracious, who is always ready to be merciful, who is always slow to anger and always abounding in steadfast love. A God who will never forsake his people because you have been bought with his son's blood. So as the people are in their physical posture of confession to lead to repentance, we first see that they have this unrelenting God-focused perspective which we need for our prayers. And it's from that then that they then have uh, this confession of sin in verses 26 through 31. And just read a couple verses of this. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you and they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. If you're gone up to somebody to have a casual conversation. Hey, how are you doing? And they get very personal and open and vulnerable and it makes you a little uncomfortable that you weren't prepared for somebody to be so raw and open with you. During my internship at, at the Olivet Church in McConnell's, sometime I would go over to the Westminster Catawba Christian School and play Guitar for their uh, for their chapel on Friday mornings. It was my last chapel with them before we we're going to move to, to Georgia. Get done playing my guitar and I'm packing everything up. And a girl I knew from she come to our youth group some, but she's mainly going to another youth group. She she comes up to me and I go, hey, or she goes, hey, how are you doing? I'm like, I'm doing pretty good. I said, well, how are you doing? Right, casual conversation. How are you doing? She's not so good. Just found out my dad is having an affair on my mother and he's moved out, leaving us to ourselves. And her dad was a pastor in town. And I had to very quickly regroup myself because I wasn't prepared to have this conversation. Something so personal and open and vulnerable. I was expecting her to say, yeah, you know, I'm at school, blah, blah, blah. We kind of get that feeling here, don't we? The covenant community isn't holding anything back about their heritage and history. I said, we know who we are. We come from people who are disobedient. They're rebellious. They're even murderous. Did you, did you pick up on that? Lord, our forefathers killed your prophets. The people you sent to us, to them, to share your word, they killed them. They were blasphemous. This is not what we generally hear at our church midweek prayer meeting. This isn't a group of people who are trying to protect their family's reputation. That's not 
they're not trying to keep skeletons in the closets. They're putting it all out there. Lord, this is who I this is who I come from. These are my people. These are sins I can struggle with. And so I think the question we have to struggle with here isn't why would they pray this way? The question is, why wouldn't we pray like this? Why why shouldn't you, why shouldn't I pray like this? God knows our sins. He knows our every thought, our every word, our every deed. Do we think he's going to forget? He's a senile old grandfather sending his lazy boy up in heaven who can't remember your name? Do we think that, that we're, we're so good at hiding our sins that God will never be able to find them? No, we need to be personal and open and vulnerable when we pray and confess our sins to God. Because if we believe everything about God that was just prayed, if we believe everything about God that we pray together on a weekly basis in the Lord's Prayer, then we would want to pray this way. To bring our sins to God. Those sins that are known, those sins that are hidden, those sins that we're proud of, and those sins that we hope nobody ever learns about, those sins we wear as a badge of honor, and those sins that we try to hide as far away as possible. God knows them. Don't hide them. Be personal and open and vulnerable with them so you can know the sweetness of his forgiveness for your sins. And then from there, they rest in God's covenant faithfulness. The great, the mighty, and the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. They book in their prayer with God. They begin, they end their prayer by coming back to God. He's the God who makes the covenant with his people to be their God and all the blessings and mercy, love, and goodness that entails. And they will be his people with all the blessings and mercy and love and goodness that entails. And what's interesting to me here is that they are making up for generations of not confessing their sins. But they don't stay mired there. They don't make that their identity. They come back to God. They come back to his covenant. And they were reminded they are his covenant people. And they, are, they find their comfort and rest there. This is the God who promises to always keep his covenant and steadfast love with his people. So we need to begin and end our prayers with God to give us the right perspective. And this all ends with a covenant reaffirmation. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing on the sealed documents or names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. After generations of dark days, they now see a new beginning. A new beginning. They've been worshiping together in some kind of formal way for almost a month. They've had Bible study, they have prayer, they have sermons, and it leads to this event where they make this solemn promise before God and each other's hearing that they will walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, that they may observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our God and his rules and his statutes. Confession of sin is just merely the first step. The second step is always repentance. And we have not truly confessed our sins if we do not repent of them. If we, can, if we think we confess, but we don't have a growing desire and commitment to walk more faithfully with the Lord, then we have not confessed our sins. True confession leads to true repentance. 
John Calvin's family motto was simply, My heart I offer to you, O Lord, promptly and sincerely. And that's the sign of true confession and repentance. If you ever want a ruler, a standard, if you, if you are truly saved or not, then this is one of your standards and one of your rulers. Have you truly confessed your sins to repent of them? Have you truly confessed your sins so not only you'll be forgiven of them, but so that you will walk away from them? Or is confession for you just a get-out-of-hell-free card? Because if that's all confession is to you, and you haven't gotten out of hell, you've just laid more paths and stones to hell. True confession leads to true repentance, where we offer our hearts to God promptly and sincerely, knowing that he forgives us when we confess. This is the mark of someone who loves Jesus because they know he has first loved them and he, they long to walk with their Jesus. Pray with me.